following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Let's turn our Bibles to our evening scripture reading, which is in 1 Chronicles chapter 2. 1 Chronicles and chapter 2. While you turn there, I just want to say a word of welcome to our friend from Saturday mornings, John Cole. John, thank you for coming. Yes, he has been coming to our men's meetings uh, quite regularly for, well, several years. I don't know how long now, but uh, you know, five, six years. So, yes, a good friend of the church here and had opportunity to come tonight. So we're grateful for that. First Chronicles chapter 2. I alluded to this this morning or mentioned it when I spoke about the difficulty of reading this portion and all the names here, so bear with us. These were the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. These three were born to him by the daughter of Shua the Canaanitess. Ur, the firstborn of Judah, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so he killed him. And Tamar, his daughter-in-law, bore him Perez and Zerah. All the sons of Judah were five. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hemuel. Sons of Zerah were Zimri, Ethan, Heman, Calcol, and Dara, five of them in all. Son of Carmi was Achar, the troubler, uh, sorry, yeah, Achar, the troubler of Israel who transgressed in the accursed thing. Different spelling there. The son of Ethan was Azariah. Also the sons of Hezron who were born to him were Jeremiel, Ram, and Chelebi. Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nashon, the leader of the children of Judah. Nashon begot Salma, and Salma begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot Eliab, his firstborn, Aminadab the second, Shimea the third, Nethanel the fourth, Redai the fifth, Ozem the sixth, and David the seventh. Now their sisters were Zeruiah and Abigail, and the sons of Zeruiah were Abishai, Joab, and Asahel three. Abigail bore Amasa, and the father of Amasa was Jether the Ishmaelite. Verse 18, Caleb, the son of Hezron, had children by Azubah, his wife, and by Jerioth. Now these were her sons, Jeshur, Shobab, and Ardon. When Azubah died, Caleb took Ephrath, his wife, who bore him Hur. And Hur begot Uri, and Uri begot Bezalel. Or Bezalel, perhaps you've pronounced it. Verse 21, Now afterward, Hezron went in to the daughter of Machir, the father of Gilead, whom he married when he was 60 years old, and she bore him Seguv. Seguv begot Jair, who had 23 cities in the land of Gilead. Geshur and Syria took from them the towns of Jair with Kenath and its towns, 60 towns. All these belonged to the sons of Machir, the father of Gilead. After Hezron died and Caleb... Ephrathah, Hezron's wife, Abijah, bore him Ashur, the father of Tekoa. The sons of Jeremiel, the firstborn of Hezron, were Ram, the firstborn, and Buna, Oren, Ozem, and Ahijah. Jeremiel had another wife whose name was Atara. She was the mother of Onam. The sons of Ram, the firstborn of Jeremiel, were Maz, Jamin, and Eker. The sons of Onam were Shemai and Jada. Sons of Shemai were Nadab and Abishur. And the name of the wife of Abishur was Abihail, and she bore him Achban and Molid. 
the sons of Nadab were Seled and Apayim. Seled died without children. The son of Apayim was Ishi. The son of Ishi was Sheshan, and Sheshan's son was Eli. The sons of Jada, the brother of Shemai, were Jether and Jonathan. Jether died without children. The sons of Jonathan were Peleth and Zaza. These were the sons of Jeremiel. Now, Sheshem had no sons, only daughters, and Sheshan had an Egyptian servant whose name was Jarha. Sheshan gave his daughter to Jarha, his servant, as wife, and she bore him Atai. Atai begat Nathan, and Nathan begat Zebad. Zebad begat Ephlal, and Ephlal begat Obed. Obed begat Jehu, and Jehu begat Azariah. Azariah begat Helez, and Helez begat Eleazar. Eleazar begat Sismai, and Sismai begat Shalom. Shalom begat Jechemiah, and Jechemiah begat Elishama. The descendants of Caleb, the brother of Jeremiel, were Mesha, his firstborn, who was the father of Ziph, and the sons of Meresha, the father of Hebron. The sons of Hebron were Korah, Tepua, Rechem, and Shema. Shema begot Raham, the father of Jorkoam, and Rechem begot Shemai. And the son of Shemai was Maon, and Maon was the father of Beth-zur, Ephah, Caleb's concubine bore Haran, Moza, and Gazez, and Haran begot Gazez. And the sons of Jadai were Regem, Jotham, Geshem, Pelet, Ephah, and Sha'af. Ma'akah, Caleb's concubine, bore Sheber and Tirhanah. She also bore Sha'af, the father of Madmanah, Shiva, the father of Machbanah, and the father of Gilbiah. And the daughter of Caleb was Aksha. These were the descendants of Caleb, the sons of Hur. The firstborn of Ephrathah were Shobal, the father of Kirjath-Jerim, Salma, the father of Bethlehem, and Hareph, the father of Beth-Gader. And Shobal, the father of Kirjath-Jerim and his and descendants, Heroet and half of the families of Manahoth. The families of Kirjath-Jerim were the Ithrites, the Puthites, the Shumathites, and the Mish. From these came the Zorathites and the Eshtolites. The sons of Salma were Bethlehem, the Netophetites, Atroth, Beth, Jobab, half of the Manahathites and the Zorites. And the families of the scribes who dwelt at Jabez were the Tirathites and the Shimeathites and the Suchathites. These were the Kenites who came from Hamath the father of the house of Rechab. Well, again, a, t- a tongue twister there. But, uh, you know, if you were looking up your family history, you would really appreciate having that background, wouldn't you? Yeah, we were just speaking of that this morning. Isn't that something? An oxa in your family tree in the recent years. Oh, that's nice. Very good. Yeah, good. All right. Well, that's First Chronicles chapter 2 in our journey through Scripture together, reading Chronicles and Ezekiel in these days. Well, turn your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 7, if you would, please. And we're going to talk about a single verse tonight. Um, I did offer an opportunity for questions. I did not receive any today in the afternoon, so... Uh, if you have any burning questions, I could take those, but I may say I'll 
study them and work on them later as well. So give me that, uh, give me that privilege. Did you have anything? All right, Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 6. We've looked at the Sermon on the Mount in some detail, and we have looked most recently at the passage that says, Judge not, lest you be judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. That's verses 1 and 2. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And then we saw the Lord's illustration of that teaching, that direct command, in verses 3 through 5, when he illustrated using the speck and the beam or the plank or the log uh, in the eye. And those we saw represented um, faults or sins in the life of the person, the speck being a relatively insignificant fault and the plank being a very significant fault, Uh, something like what the Pharisees did when they strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel. Get this very picturesque, uh, you know, thing in your mind going when you look at that. So straining out a gnat and swallowing a whole camel uh, right down the gullet, uh, the things that they would permit while they concerned themselves with tithing mint and anise and cumin, but left undone the weightier matters of the law. Matthew chapter twenty-three. That was, the, that was a real problem in hypocritical religion. So the Lord illustrates that with those verses. He says the solution is hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And I, I anticipated that it, many times when you remove the plank from your own eye, you might be able to see a little more clearly the relative importance and weight of the speck in your brother's eye, and it may induce you to even, even not say anything at all or pray for the the brother. You see, when you're concerned about removing planks from your own eye, you get less concerned about everybody else around you. You mind your own business a little bit more uh, when you have that mindset. And then we come to verse number six, which is our topic tonight or our verse for the evening. And the Lord says this, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. So what do you do with that verse? Well, that's an interesting one. So let's dig into it a little bit. This is a fairly well-known verse used sometimes in Christian conversation when uh, somebody is... Maybe they're not getting anywhere with something or they're saying, oh, just forget it, you know, don't cast your pearls or give what is holy to the dogs. But there are questions about its correct interpretation. For one thing, how does it fit with the prior verses? Is it just kind of, you know, the Lord... I mean, I can imagine a situation where, and this happens in the New Testament, where the Lord gives us a little sequence of instruction and between verses 5 and 6 is not notated in the text, but there's a pregnant pause. That is, just let you think about those first five verses for a second. Go on to another topic. That's possible. Um, but let's, we'll think about that by the end of the message. 
For another thing, what in the world are dogs and swine? It sounds very demeaning, yet these words come out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus, so we know they cannot be demeaning, at least in the sinful sense that we think of it. Uh, The Lord Jesus did not uh, have the constraints uh, that we feel about being politically correct. Uh, John the Baptist didn't either, and that didn't, you know, bring him into the good graces of Herod or others around him sometimes. The phrase vipers comes to mind, um, or, uh, you know, dead fruitless trees or trees with bad fruit, pretty obvious, uh, pretty negative uh, connotation, or just plainly telling Herod, you can't have this woman as your wife. It's illegal for you to have her, according to the law. Uh, and, of course, you know, when, when you start getting personal like that, then people get upset, and they, uh, of course, put him in jail and then killed him eventually. And the Lord did the same thing. I mean, if you think of it, woe to you lawyers. Woe to you Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites. And uh, dogs and swine here, uh, you know, go tell Herod that fox. Remember that? When he called Herod that? So the Lord did not have that uh, you know, politically correct um, bone in his body that he worried about what people thought. He said it like it was, truth. And sometimes truth can only be conveyed in terms that are strong terms, direct terminology. Now, my understanding of what is holy and what are pearls, and that's what I've titled my message tonight, Holy Pearls, Dogs and Swine, uh, my understanding of that is that they are parallels. Those things that are holy and those things that are pearls refer to the same thing. There's no difference really between them. Similarly, dogs and swine are parallels. They're not trying to make some technical difference between dogs and swine, okay? The two phrases together teach a single truth. So let's first start start with the holy things, the holy things. What is holy? The Lord says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast pearls before swine. And if if you follow my case for the parallelism between the phrases, you will say immediately, well, what is holy is valuable like a pearl. Is valuable. I, I have never gone shopping for pearls, okay? I don't know how much they cost, real ones, fake ones, I don't even know, okay? Um, I just know that the, the real ones are pretty uh, valuable, I guess. And to, to find a large one is an amazing find and so on, but they are, they are valuable. Um, Matthew chapter 13, you know, the fellow who finds the kingdom of God is like a guy who uh, finds a precious treasure in the earth and he goes and sells all that he has and he comes and buys that land so he can have that natural resource that's found in in the heart of the earth there. So what is holy is valuable because it's likened to pearls which are very precious. Yet what the Lord says here is very generic at the same time. What does he mean by what is holy? I think it's purposely generic. 
It could refer to holy objects. And if we were in a high church situation, or if you were aficionado of the Catholic Church, you probably immediately think of relics and uh, holy, you know, holy objects in the church, icons, statues, maybe the cross. <clears throat> you know, these things become to you <clears throat> holy objects. And, but in the Christian faith, there really are few things like that, if anything. Certainly nothing that is ceremonially pure or special in terms of objects. But what is holy, I think, rather, instead of to objects or relics, refers to a class of things, including divine truth, the gospel, the testimony of blessing from God, even miracles when they were exercised by the Lord and the apostles. These things are sanctified or set apart by God for his purposes. Okay, so it's that class of things. We can think of it maybe in shorthand like the deposit of God's truth is a holy thing. It's a pearl. The gospel is a pearl. Um, you know, the blessings that come from God are pearls. Are, you know, what would you rather have, forgiveness of your sins or a pearl? Obviously, you'd rather have forgiveness of sins, right? Forget the pearls. You can't take those to heaven with you, but you can certainly take forgiveness with you. In fact, that's the only way you're going to get into heaven is to be forgiven of sin believing in Jesus Christ. And so these are set apart, important, holy things. And notice what the Lord says, these holy things. Do not give them to certain ones. Do not give them. What does that mean? Well, I observe that if you're not to give something to somebody, that means you have it to give. Isn't that true? You possess it. You have something to give others. Ponder that for a minute. You have truth. You have the Word of God. You have God Himself. You have the Spirit of God. You have forgiveness of sin. You have Christ. You have a large Christian family around the world. You have a local church of which you are a member and to which you promised your attendance and your support financially and ministry and all of that. You have... So much that is holy, like pearls and rubies and, and uh, gold. I want you to know that you possess holy things from God, precious pearls from Him. And not only do you, should you know that, but you should treat those things as precious as they are. Don't just treat them as commonplace those blessings that you have from the Lord, uh, they really are holy, valuable things. Do not give them means that you have them. You possess them, and they are a blessing to possess. Now, as we get into what this means, I think that the idea is this. You must use discernment in your decision about whether to continue to share or to give or attempt to give the precious pearls of God's truth to people to whom you are speaking, people in your life. You must use discernment about that, about whether to continue to do that. Now, the, the, what the Lord is saying is this is a call not to misuse the holy things of God. Now, 
the illustration here or the kind of picture that the Lord paints of dogs and swine, we'll come to that in more detail in a moment, but animals cannot understand the value of precious things, of holy things. And similarly, unsaved people are unable to understand the things of God. Like giving a fine piece of china to a pig to have his dinner on, or a diamond ring or a gold coin or a Picasso painting, giving one of those things to a dog and expecting him to appreciate it. They do not and they cannot do so. They would take the gospel and trample it underfoot. Hebrews 10 alludes to this idea. Hebrews 10, verses 28 and 29. The scripture says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose... Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? That's rough. But people do that. They reject God. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, God doesn't exist. There is no God. They're taking the holy truth, the holy things, the holy knowledge the precious pearls of wisdom that God has, and they become angry when you tell them those things. They become angry when you tell them that their behavior is contrary to the holiness of God. And that, in fact, even telling them that is a holy thing of God because it's helping, trying to help them to come along on the right path to honor the Lord. So casting pearls or giving what is holy is to persist in calling for the unregenerate to understand and follow the things of God after they have indicated their rejection of them. The emphasis is that we see what is holy as holy, and we do not continue to push it on those who reject the truth. We respect truth enough to let truth be truth, and holy things to be holy things. If the unbeliever will not accept them on God's terms, we don't encourage them by continuing to give those things out. We don't encourage them to trample those things underfoot. We let the scoffers go their own way and do their thing. Uh, Probably you've experienced this if you've done uh, ministry like we have done at the art fair. I feel like there was a case of that in our shift where somebody came and was messing with us, kind of, and talking really nonsense, and then became angry at the end. And, um, you know, really at that point, it was like, you know, well, thanks for coming. Um, Have a good day. You know, move on. Let's talk to somebody else. Because it was a scoffer. It was somebody who rejected the things that we were teaching, and we weren't going to get anywhere with them at that point. Arguing was not going to do anything. Arguing is just basically like this casting your pearls before uh, unbelievers. Um, and what you're doing, in a sense, when you, when you do this, is you're handing somebody over like God does. Remember Romans 1? They persisted in those behaviors, so God handed them over. He, gave, he delivered them over to a reprobate mind. He said, okay. You go your way. Now, what, when God does that, what does he do to that person? 
He doesn't do anything to the person. God doesn't have to induce in them more sin, as if that, that's not even, I mean, that's a blasphemous thought to even think. He doesn't induce sin in anyone. He can't be tempted by sin, nor does he cause anyone to sin. But what he does do is he may just remove the restraints. Okay, you want to go your own way? Very fine. You do that. You see what the consequences are. You know, parents might come to that point sometime. All right, son or daughter, you're going to live like you're not going to live like that in our home. The restraints are off. You go move, and the restraints are off. But you're going to have to deal with God about this. So handing over is 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 nothing um, bad on God's part. It's in fact to the person who's handed over, they like it. Oh, they have the freedom now to do what they want to do, even though they realize that freedom is destruction. So this is like what God does with those who reject the knowledge of the truth. The gospel is, is uh, it's out of place to cheapen it or to make it satisfactory to the person who doesn't want it or doesn't, can't understand it. Certainly we cannot change the content of the message to suit the hearers. You know, in other words, if somebody's opposing you or you think that opposition is going to happen, don't soften the message just because you want to get an acceptance of it. You're going to turn them into a false disciple even if you did succeed. And they're never going to be happy with the message that you bring, even if you water it down some. They have to get in line with the holy things of God, not the other way around. Why do we persist in thinking that we've got to make the gospel as, so, as simple as possible or you know, eliminate the call to repent or eliminate the idea of lordship or, or whatever to try to make it so easy that you can just have a warm, fuzzy feeling toward Jesus and you're suddenly saved? We, 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 we accommodate the message. You know what? That's wrong. What has to be accommodated is the person who needs to be saved. They need to accommodate themselves to the message of God. He's the king, not them. We don't change the message to suit the hearer. They have to get in line with God. They have to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. They have to repent, not the other way around. Why would we, why we would want to be directed in our conduct or our message or our preaching of the truth by those who are unclean is beyond me. Our orders come from heavenly headquarters, not from earthly headquarters. Now, what are, where are some examples? I, I drew a few examples out from Scripture that might help you understand this concept. Turn to Matthew 13, 58, uh, please, tonight. Matthew 13 and verse 58. The Lord, after the parables here, the lengthy chapter on parables, uh, comes to Nazareth. In verse 54, he taught in their synagogue, and they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? 55, is not this the carpenter's son? And, you know, they listed his brothers and his sisters, and where did he get all these things? 57, so they were offended at him. You know, where does this, you know, where does this young punk think he gets off teaching us? You know, he's 30 years old. He just shows up back in town. Where did he get all this? You know, and of course, it's really because they don't like what he's teaching that they criticize, but they were offended. Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and his own house. 
Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He did not cast pearls or give holy things in that place after he did that teaching. And what did he do? Well, he went on to other places. His mission was to go to all the villages and teach and preach the gospel of the kingdom. What about Jesus when he was standing before Pilate? He didn't say a word. What about before Herod? Didn't answer a thing. What about uh, Paul and Antioch of Pisidia when the Jews rejected what he said? He said, well, okay, I'm turning to the Gentiles. We're not getting anywhere laying out these holy things to you, so we're going to take them elsewhere. Same thing with Paul in Corinth. You know, you, you people judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, or we're going elsewhere. Done. Okay, that is an application of this idea. The gospel is a holy thing at some point for each person, and even on a worldwide scale, God is going to take away that holy thing, and it's not going to be available any longer. You with me? There's going to come a time when the door closes. No more opportunities for the gospel. Certainly after one dies, there's no more opportunities for the gospel. So he will not be casting his holy things before the world forever. Mark 4.25 says, Whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even that which he has will be taken away. I think it's a related idea to this. That which you have, you have access to the gospel now, world, watching world on YouTube, you have access to the gospel. But God's going to close the door on that. And if you reject the gospel, then even that spiritual light that you do have is going to wane and disappear and go away. This refers to somebody, this taking away refers to somebody who hears but rejects the truth. You know, take heed how you hear, you know, for how you hear, or it's like this kind of with measure, the measure you measure out, it's going to be measured back to you. It's not speaking of material prosperity. It's not like the Lord saying, whatever, if somebody has $100, I'm going to take it away from them. It speaks of spiritual prosperity, the quantity of truth that a person has. People who reject the truth will be impoverished even more, and people who receive the truth will be enriched and multiply their blessings from God. That's why it's like a, a person who is open to the things of God ratchets up in their spiritual prosperity and condition because God gives them more. He's been faithful in this, God gives him more. Faithful in this, God gives him more. And he, he grows. But somebody who rejects, he ratchets down. And down, 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 down. And it's a it's a, a amazing thing to see sometimes. You perhaps are thinking of an example of a person who seemed to be, you know, oh, they were coming along in the things of God. But then they reject and they start making poor life choices and they ratchet down and down and down to the point where you look at them a few years later and you say, my, how the mighty have fallen. This person is nothing like what they were five years ago, ten years ago. They have, they have gone down. Even what they had was taken away from them. All right, so do not give what is holy 
or cast your pearls. Now, I'm going to focus our attention on the phrase, to the dogs and before swine. This is where things get dicey because you think it's very negative, uh, or somebody who reads does. Dogs and swine were unclean animals in the Jewish culture. Okay, I hope that you understand that. As for pigs, you see them in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. There, God specifies a number of characteristics of animals that are not uh, allowed to be eaten and are considered unclean by the Jewish people. They're specifically called out that way. The dog, is, you don't see the dog, I think, as far as I could tell, mentioned specifically in like Leviticus or Exodus or Deuteronomy as far as a law considering it un, uh, unclean. But you see some other passages that the Bible, in which the Bible says a dog is insignificant and it's dispensable. You know, the life of a dog wasn't really worth that much. I mean, they probably were plenteous, and if one died, oh well, get another one. You know, I know that's kind of contrary to our modern society where dogs are people. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't want to downplay that you appreciate your animal, but um, dogs are dogs. And in ancient Jewish culture, and if you go elsewhere around the world, I mean, you know, dogs, stray dogs are everywhere. And they, they're dangerous, maybe. Uh, they're dirty or whatever. Uh, filthy. Let me look at a couple of uh, Proverbs. Um, Proverbs 26, 11. Yeah, as a dog returns to its own vomit... That's a, a well-recognized characteristic of a dog. That's kind of dirty, isn't it? That's disgusting is what that is. Um, or, uh, and, and then I was going to read Second Peter 2.22, but it's the same thing. Uh, as a pig returns to its wallowing in the mire after it's been washed, as a dog returns, it's like a, a person who's been exposed to Christianity and then returns to their living in sin, and it's just very... Uh, incongruous with the truth that they have received. Now, um, Ecclesiastes adds this little interesting thing. It says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, why is that? Because something alive is better than something that's dead. A lion is a very stately animal, you know, the king of the beasts. Uh, when it's alive, there's like, there's no match for it. Of course, no dog would be a match for a lion at least most cases, right? But um, if it's dead, it's worth even less than a dog. So there's a measure of the dog's worth pretty low on the scale. Uh, the word dog was applied figuratively to immoral men corresponding to a woman as a, as a harlot or prostitute. A dog was a man in that kind of situation. But those nuances of the terms do not exactly match what it means in this context. The Lord is speaking about people who are unbelievers here, unclean, particularly as respects that unclean status before God. Now, Jews would use the term a dog or a swine in a very derogatory and racist fashion toward Gentiles, unbelieving Jews. Our Lord cannot conceivably be using the terms in a derogatory or racist fashion here. These ones are sinners, 
That's the nuance. They're unwashed, they're unforgiven, they're not repentant, and therefore they're not able to be close to God who cannot even look on wickedness with any favor whatsoever. Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that. So the idea here is not that Christians are to think of unbelievers as pigs. Okay, That's a sinful conception of this verse. That's an evil way of thinking. If you think that, you are proud and understand nothing. I'll just say it in the words of Paul, 1 Timothy 6.4. You are proud and understand nothing. Christians still love our enemies when we interact with them. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount told us that, Matthew 5.44, love our enemies. At the same time we love our enemies, though, we recognize that those who reject the holy things of God are not part of God's family. They are outside of God's family. Hopefully they'll come in sometime by faith. But we also don't prejudge somebody on their external characteristics and say to ourselves, well, there's a dog slash pig, and I'm not going to share the holy things of God with them. I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. For someone you do not know or you may not have interacted with them in a long while, you have no idea whether the person is going to continue to reject the things of God. Maybe they will at this time be moved by God's Spirit to repent of their sin and into righteousness. That is a possibility, of course. But the danger of these animals, back to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6, what is the danger given in the text? Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. And if that's not enough, they'll turn and tear you to pieces. If you persist in giving the holy things of God, the pearls, to these people who are, who are outside of the family of God, it's likely going to make like the dogs and the swine mad. I mean, if you keep you know, whacking a pig or pull a dog by its ears or whatever, you might get a bite. There's a herd of the pigs. They might uh, trample you down. Once it becomes clear there's no interest on the part of an unbeliever for the things of God, continuing to press and to argue is only going to make them mad. And you know what unbelievers do when they get mad, especially when they have power, right? If they have unfettered power, they make your life misery. Uh, Proverbs 9.8 says this, do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Or Proverbs 15 and verse number 12, a scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. So what they'll do is they'll first trample the things of God underfoot. They'll take the gospel message that you give to them and they'll trash it. That's not true. Christ didn't exist, the gospel's false or whatever. They'll trash that, they'll trample it underfoot. They don't like those things. In fact, they hate God and they hate God's truth. They think they know better. They have their own authority themselves. They think you're immoral. You as a possessor and giver of those things do not want God's truth to be treated poorly by anyone. You do not want to profane that which is holy. 
Better to leave the scene, so to speak. I'm just I'm thinking of, you know, in a context of sharing the gospel with somebody and they reject. You can tell the temperature's rising. Just stop. Don't continue to cast the truth before them. Leave the scene. Save God's name from receiving any more abuse than it already has. And secondly, in their rage, these ones will not only trample underfoot the truth, the holy things of God, but they will go after the messenger. They hate the message. They hate the giver of the message, who is God, but they can't get at God because he's too far away. He's in heaven. So they get at the messenger who brings the message. That's you or me or whatever the, whoever the Christian is. And so they hate the intermediary who is closest to God, and they think that they're offering God, in fact, a service by killing you or putting you in jail, shutting you down if they have the power to do that. Now, I'm going to close with this. Verses 1 to 4 teach us, or 5 rather, also, teach us to avoid hypercritical judgment. And so you might stop there at verse 5 and say, boy, I really have to be very careful, almost to the point of not saying anything to anybody. We cannot, however, forget that we must proclaim the truth. We have precious things from God. We have holy things, pearls from God. We cannot be so unjudgmental that we're never giving those things out. We are to give those things out. But we have to have, and so we can't have zero discernment about people or situations, or, you know, or, or, or never say anything critical. You know, I've, I've got logs in my eye, so I can't say anything to anybody, you say. But we must discern when it is time to move on in that ministry to greener pastures so that we do not bring God's name down into a muddy wrestling match. Like picturing the swine again trampling in their little wallow. That is not suitable for the holy things of God. Okay? So at some point you have to decide in your ministry, you have holy things, you want to share those with others, you want to share the valuable pearls that you have, but you're going to have to hold back on that if there's an utter rejection of those things and you move on and you give them to someone else who has need of them. Well, that's Matthew 7, 6. Think about that. Puzzle over that. See what you think and uh, let me know. I certainly would welcome that. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you tonight for the truth of your word. And even though perhaps we found this verse, this single verse to be a little bit of a puzzle, There is warrant for seeing it and understanding it the way that I have presented this evening. Thank you, Lord, for the pearls that you've given to us. We possess those and we can share them with others. And I pray that you would give us the discernment and the wisdom, the know-how, not only how to share them, but when to share them and when to stop so that we don't continue down an unprofitable or unproductive path with someone in conversation or, or even in life. Perhaps some of us have long-term relationships with parents or co-workers or teachers or spouses who do not love and know the Lord, and we have to be very wise about putting out these things that we know and, and love and hold dear 
lest they become trampled and we cause more of a scene, as it were, than what needs to be. Lord, help us, we pray with that. In Jesus' name, amen.